Good afternoon, everybody. Chief Patrol Agent Ryan Landrum here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, coming to you with another What's Important Now podcast. Today, we have, uh, much like all of our guests, a very, very special guest with us, um, the Acting Chief of the Law Enforcement Operations Directorate at United States Border Patrol Headquarters in Washington, D.C., Chief Tony Barker. Chief, welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So... I have your bio here and it is uh, extensive, um, kind of uh, been around the world, literally, uh, and and have some credentials behind you that are that are very impressive. And I kind of want to get through those over time, but I want to start somewhere in about 1998. Sure. Right. Absolutely. So 1998, you uh, you enter the state of Maine's police academy yeah. and you go through that. Right. So what got you into law enforcement? What draws you to that from Maine? Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, law enforcement, you know, family profession, you know, my father, my uncle, uh, you know, both law enforcement uh, officers. My grandfather was was uh, uh, was part of the Maine State Police as well. And um, uh, as a matter of fact, I have his badge to this day, you know, and and uh, and he's, he's passed a long time ago. But, um, you know, so it, it was always a family profession, you know, and and I had wanted to uh, um to, to actually just join the main state police. That was my goal. I never actually had intentions on joining the border patrol in any way. And, um, you know, when one day when I was working, <clears throat> went through the academy and I was working, uh, you know, I had a, 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 I'll say a very volatile encounter uh, of which, you know, I was, I was in, a, in an active assaultive, uh, you know, type of environment with uh, someone I was trying to arrest. And it was a border patrol agent actually that uh, that, that's, that, uh, that came and helped me, you know, and, and from that moment on, uh, it was really my introduction to who the border patrol, uh, you know, was and is and, and, uh, and, and all the amazing things of, you know, hearing their stories of the border patrol agents and, and really got me very interested and intrigued in the, in the job. Um, and, and, and I, and I credit them as to, you know, to me being here today. So it was, it was, uh, traumatic times, uh, that got me here, but, but obviously it was, it was well worth it as well. So I don't look back at all. That's that's a great story. It's funny because uh, you believe it or not, that story, especially in our time frame, the, the 95 to 2000 time frame, probably even beyond uh, the number of times you hear how a Border Patrol agent just randomly performing his duties or her duties on the job daily created an inflection point in somebody's life where they uh, felt the calling to go and follow in that person's footsteps. Mm, um, it, it's just tremendous. Uh, you know, I did it. Carl did it. Uh, several others that, that have uh, that have gone through uh, and sat where you're sitting right now had that exact same story. So I think the takeaway there, honestly, is in the times of recruitment is hard generally, but for the policing as a profession uh, in 2022, don't underestimate the ability of a Border Patrol agent on beat absolutely to to actually be an active recruiter so you are that that public facing uh just like we talk about you're an intel collector everybody's an intel collector everybody can be a recruiter because you never know when you recruit the tony barkers yeah, absolutely world, right absolutely correct and the influence you'll have that's right so in 2001 you uh you finally make it through the process and you enter on duty with the united states border patrol with class 474 uh and your first duty station is the del rio station in the del rio sector Kind of a hotbed for uh, activity, uh, kind of an all threats environment, if you will. Tons and tons of uh, migrants uh, traversing through there. There's still narcotics uh, going through there. Um, and But for the men and women of the, of the Detroit sector right now, I mean, excuse me, the, the Del Rio sector right now, um, trying, to, to, trying to secure that, that section of border. But give us a, a kind of a glimpse of what Del Rio looks like in 2001. Yeah. So... 
2001 Del Rio was definitely different than it is now, uh, but but not so not so far fetched. You know, we we still had a significant amount of traffic, nothing to where it is now, but we still had a significant amount of traffic as to what we considered then. As a matter of fact, you know, when I got to Del Rio, it was it was pre Operation Streamline, you know, so we we had uh, you know a lot of traffic. It was very busy. Um, we had a lot of Brazilian nationals at the time who were showing up. So a lot of, of other than Mexican OTMs, uh, that were showing, uh, that were, that were, were crossing and countering, we were arresting. Um, so realistically, you know, to be able to watch and I'll, and I'll say, you know, very formative aspect of, of my career when I started watching and seeing how strategic application of consequences can influence the dynamic of, of, you know, illicit or illegal entry, uh, you know, and, and, and through, uh, through that strategic application, it can really change traffic. As a matter of fact, uh, during that time frame, when we started implementing Operation Streamline, it actually pushed and drove traffic to Tucson sector and Tucson sector started increasing rapidly in, in, in the flows that they were receiving. So it's really, you know, I would say a formative phase uh, during that time period, I also, you know, went to, um, to went to the canine academy, you know, uh, picked up a dog, became a canine instructor. And, and, and that, I will say that that opened up my eyes to, to many different things about program and program management. Um, you know, I, I, I was, uh, you know, I'll say blessed to, to have the opportunity to be, you know, some of the, the foundational instructors to the tracking, trailing and the patrol dog program. Um, you know, and, and, and helping to build that and create that, you know, with, with the, the men and women and the amazing leaders that we had uh, at the, uh, the canine facility at the time and the, you know, under the masterful teachings of, of Matt Devaney. Uh, if you're you know, in canine, you know the name Matt Devaney. <laughs> exactly, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, just a, just a great opportunity. But it, what it really showed and demonstrated uh, for me as a young agent at that time coming into to an environment just very eyes wide open uh, was, was, you know, what there's, there's many facets to the border patrol and how unique and dynamic this organization is and, and the amazing opportunities that, it, you know, that are afforded to the agents if they're just willing to get out of their comfort zone a little bit and get some experience and try new things. It's just, it's just, uh, so rewarding. Yeah. So for context to Barker's here, uh, like many of our guests, uh, literally uh, mentoring Class 1194, which he's been doing since uh, their entry on duty six months ago yeah. or so. Uh, and then yeah, as the mentor, you come and deliver the uh, commencement speech at the Academy uh, graduation ceremony. But that 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 theme that you just talked about was pretty much central to the message that you conveyed mm -hmm. uh, to those folks. So long as you're willing to uh, branch out of your comfort zone and willing to try new things, maybe things that you uh, are pre were previously uncomfortable with, things that you might think you would fail at. Uh, the Each door you open, every time you do that, opens another few more doors absolutely. every single time. Yeah, so, absolutely. Speaking of Tucson, yeah, right? You, uh, you, you do some great work in, in uh, Del Rio sector. And obviously, as the uh, as the flow of migration transitions from from that area of the country into Tucson, Tucson starts to blow up. So in 2006, yeah. you go over to the Tucson sector for a couple of stops. Tell us about that. Yeah. So so in Tucson, um, uh, transferred over to Tucson, first line supervisor at the Sonoya Station, um, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I'll tell you, I mean, at, at that point in time, uh, you know, Tucson was what I would consider is still rapidly growing, you know, 
when I when I arrived at Sonoida Station, I think we had roughly 60 to 70 agents at the station, uh, you know, which was small in comparison to some of the other the other locations. When I left to when I left Sonoida, uh, which is roughly two years later, um, you know, we had near 300 agents at the station. I mean, we had had grown significantly with just an inflection trainees and all the traffic and the flow that we were receiving. Um, but but great opportunity and great experience. You know, I always say that that, uh, you know, you were never closer to the men and women that you will lead and, and, you know, than you are when you're a first line supervisor, you become, you know, that, that, that leader, but you also become, you know, the counselor, you become the person who will answer the phone no matter what time of day or night and listen to problems and, and, uh, and, and, and to be a confidant to, to, you know, to the agents that, that you're leading. Uh, and, and an incredibly rewarding experience. And I think it's truly there that you learn how to lead people and the foundation of learning those qualities of leadership, you know, and, and Tucson was a great, a great area, it had some great mentors and, and it was a, a very busy area. Sonoida was a, a big dope station at the time and, and a lot of narcotics moving through it, uh, you know, with, with Naco and, and Nogales on our flanks and uh, was was a great opportunity. Had some great opportunity to do a couple different positions within within the station and different type of leadership roles. Uh, you know, uh, doing whether it was acting FOS or whether it was admin soup or whatever whatever that might happen to be. Uh, been a, was able to to experience a lot of great things, and then and then uh, you know shortly after that was pushing off to to headquarters. Yeah. So for the listener who might not be a border patrol agent, it's important to note that. Uh, the first there, there's a few positions in this in this organization as it relates to rank mm-hmm. that uh, you probably can't afford or shouldn't skip. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, first line supervisor probably is the first one. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Uh, we we uh, create that as literally a gate. You cannot ascend to a, a position of greater responsibility without having had spent at least a year being a first line supervisor. Um, would you argue with any of that? Uh, not, not at all. I mean, I, I, you know, I think those are the foundation, the building blocks of, of, of you know, what, what, uh, you know, that you learn how to, how to lead people and, 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 and succeed in a very complex and dynamic mission. Yeah, it's yeah. and, and the, the personal side of it, right? Absolutely. So you, you become, you know, the, the mentor and counselor for these folks mm-hmm. on a personal level too. Absolutely, it may be kind of the last position in the patrol, even at the, at that level, that first line supervisor level, that you have that much of a pulse mm-hmm. on the actual workforce. The further you go up, the, you know, the, the, the wider the net goes, so the less connectivity you have with that frontline agent mm-hmm. uh, starts to expand a little bit. So you mentioned, you know, you were there for about two years. Uh, you leave the Sonoida station and you go off to your, I'm going to call it your first tour mm-hmm. <laughs> at a United States Border headquarters in Washington, D.C. as an operations officer, yep. uh, then an operations officer uh, assigned to the enforcement and, and information technology, otherwise known as uh, formerly known as EIT yep. division. So tell me a little bit about being an ops officer and, and what uh, what you did there in EIT. So, uh, you know, being an ops officer is unique. It was a unique position to go to headquarters where uh, you you were really at that point in time able to kind of see the mission uh, from a different a different lens. You know, you're obviously you were supporting uh, the assistant chiefs that that, that uh, were over the programs. Um, you know, I, I I supported basically two different different uh, lines of effort. One was agent support equipment, which is it was literally everything from GPSs to to handheld thermal imagers and everything in between. Um, you know, as well as the non-intrusive inspection equipment, the NII equipment, these are, you know, the, 
I'll say the x-ray machines essentially that, that you will see at ports of entry or, or border patrol checkpoints uh, and, and introducing those. So it was a very unique time period because as an ops officer, and then of course later promoted to an assistant chief within the same EIT uh, uh, division at the time, uh, you know, really was able to to be on the ground floor of bringing new technology into the Border Patrol. Really, what I would can say is revolutionizing and innovating based on the input of the field about how we do business. You know, uh, you know, as as an example, bringing in long range thermal imagers, which now, you know, previously agents were looking through binoculars, didn't have really anything that was handheld in the brush that would be able to see long range. Now we're introducing, you know, six mile long uh, cameras, you know, handheld cameras. And we're introducing the first, uh, you know, set of, of true NII or that non-intrusive inspection equipment into the checkpoint so that we can x-ray vehicles to be able to find narcotics. You know, really what I would consider is is innovating the way that, that the Border Patrol, uh, you know, does business and succeeds at their mission. Not only that, but understanding all the complexities around what I would consider as the other side of the job, the administrative side of the job and learning, uh, you know, government contracting and how big government money works and, and all of those type of uh, those type of avenues and, and facets. And, and that was really what I what I consider as the assistant chief and, and uh, uh, operations officer experience in a nutshell. Yeah, that's um, this. This is where you know we we've talked about this numerous times in this podcast. Uh, you have got to go to headquarters at some point in your career mm-hmm. to fully understand the scope and complexity of our mission generally uh, as it relates to uh, hemispheric and even global Absolutely. security. Really, um, that being said, uh, I really like that we talked about you being a border patrol agent first, then a supervisor, then an ops officer, then an A chief, because. In my estimation, my experience anyway, is that you really can't, you can go to headquarters all day long, right? But to be an effective ops, ops officer or an effective uh, assistant chief, especially in a division where we're, I mean, it's a, it's a relative scale, right? Emerging technology of the day, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, NVGs is an emerging mm-hmm. technology of the day. Handheld thermal imaging is an is a emerging technology of the day, and it's relative to 2011, 2010. But if you don't know the, the job of the Border Patrol agent, mm-hmm. you have no context of what's required to to affect that mission. Absolutely. Right. So you, you get that opportunity. You go to headquarters. You're now broadened. You're deeper. You're broader on, on topics of both local level, supervisory level, now national level st- stuff. And you get the opportunity and you get selected as a deputy patrol agent in charge of the Van Buren station in Holton sector. Mm-hmm. Where is Van Buren and where is Holton? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so so uh, um, Holton sector is... Uh, you know, in, in Holton, Maine, yeah. right? And, and it, it's a unique sector because the sector is the state, right? you know, and, and uh, I grew up in, in northern Maine. I actually grew up in Van Buren, as a matter of fact. So, it's a tour. yeah, yeah. So, so, so literally, you know, going in and, and uh, running the station uh, in, in the area that I grew up in, the area I patrolled in, um, you know, when I was younger, you know, that, that uh, you know, as a street cop as well. And, and uh, it's a whole different environment. And, and um, really, at that point in time, I was able to, to you know, take some of those lessons learned along the way, as well as the headquarters, I'll say that broadening of the scope that you were just speaking about, and, and, and bringing that to bear, uh, you know, at, at the Van Buren station. Um, you know, Holton sector is very unique. Uh, I'll say the, the Van Buren culture is very unique. Uh, love it. My home, you know, hometown, I'll, I'll still claim it. Uh, you know, and, and it was, uh, it was an interesting experience being kind of the hometown boy who was able to come back and, and still inject into the community and, and do some good. So, 
Um, a lot of lear lessons learned, uh, you know, in, in, at the Van Buren station. Uh, opportunities presented as well, even when I was there. Uh, you know, I always say that once you go to headquarters border patrol, it keeps on sucking you back in like a like a black hole. Yeah, yeah. So so when I was when I was there, uh, you know, within within Holton sector, I got called on by headquarters to do uh, two long term details, uh, one in, in Guatemala as well as as one uh, in Belize, and um, uh, was really being able to that that was a great opportunity to expose me uh, to to this job on an international level. Uh, and really see the depth, scope, and influence that the United States Border Patrol and CBP as a whole uh, has on other countries as well, and how how we work collectively within a region. You know, it goes back to exactly what you were saying about the the regional or hemispheric type approach uh, at at uh, I'll just say illicit you know migration of both people and and narcotics and goods. Uh, to the United States, you really get kind of a depth and scope there with that. So not only exposure to the international venue, but but also learning how to run a station, right? How to how to lead people in a second, third line leadership type of role, um, and and uh, and the complexities of what I would consider as owning now the area that that uh, that your station covers, and men being wholly responsible not only to the area that you're supposed to be patrolling, but the men and women of the United States Border Patrol that that uh, that you lead as well. Awesome. So within within that tour, you also get uh, a, a second chance to promote again, and that is as the patrol agent in charge or PAIC of the intelligence unit. Uh, they're the, almost considered like a station, if you will, right? right, right. It's got its own, own command structure. You're the PAIC of Intel for Holton. Yes. How does that look? So during that time period, you know, when you start taking a look at, at core tenants, uh, you know, of the United States Border Patrol and CBP and our mission, you know, uh, you know, protecting the country from terrorists and terrorist threats uh, was was a well, you know foundational mission, you know, and and uh, when you take a look at even even the nine eleven, uh, you know, uh, you know hijackers, bombers. Um, you know, they transitioned through the northern border. You know, that was that was their way into the country. As a matter of fact, Holton Sector was their way into the country. You know, was was one of the areas that they were coming through. Um, and and through the intelligence component, you know, the, of of Holton Sector and working with some of our partner agencies, uh, we were really taking a look at uh, you know terrorists and terrorist threats. You know, and and, and um, uh, you know their influence and and I'll say influence and vulnerabilities that would create. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, this was driven in its, its public information now, um, but a lot of the work that I was doing there was really influenced by, uh, you know, an individual who was radicalized in, in, in southern Maine who went over and, and, and fought in a, in a foreign battlefield and, um, you know, was killed. But it really started uh, illuminating what I would consider as, as potential threats, you know, and, and uh, so realistically looking at uh, intel intelligence and how the intelligence cycle drives operations uh, and, and, and how that works. So great opportunity, uh, really what I would consider is, you know, forming and, and building an intelligence component within, within a sector, uh, modernizing that approach and, and how to integrate with our partner agencies and organizations through that case that I just told you about. Uh, and, and I think that that was one of the big the big lessons is that, you know, we're, we're, a we're not in it alone, you know, uh, and we are, we, you know, and it, it sounds like a cliche term. I say it often, but we are better together, and and the way that we integrate with our partner organizations and agencies really helps not only their mission but our mission as well. It makes us more effective, not only as a U.S. Border Patrol but as a nation as well. Yeah. So I, it, you know, we think in 
talk a lot alike in many ways, right? But I, I often say, um, you know, we're fighting whether it be illegal, illegal immigration, uh, illicit flow of narcotics, et cetera, uh, at the at the U.S. border with Mexico, we've lost. Yes, we've already lost. Totally agree. So when we talk about um, bringing in, you know, willing partner nations uh, and working with them to do just that, be better together, because it's in their best interest as well for many reasons to curb, you know, outward migration from their own countries, for example, or uh, quell cartel violence in their own countries. Uh, this is speaks to to your very point the influence that the little old border patrol, mm-hmm. right? That you know people just see for for what they think it is, but the 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 footprint that we occupy on an international scale uh, is really trying to get after border security and national security. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So <clears throat> you get the opportunity. To, to lead a, a station and we're now we're talking a very appropriate uh, succession plan, right? If you've gone from agent to supervisor to, to a headquarters tour where you, you know, you do an ops officer and a chief, you go get to be a, a patrol agent in charge in, in, in Maine. Now you get to promote to the deputy chief patrol agent of the Detroit sector. Yes. Right. So talk to me about a transition from Maine, which has its own operation individually Detroit, little different operation, still northern border, but different scope, different complexity, just a little bit. So kind of characterize for me what Detroit's all about. So um, Detroit is, is a, is, you know, I always say, you know, it, you know, if you, if you've seen a border patrol sector, you've seen a border patrol sector, yeah. you know, as, as they're all different and, and unique. Uh, Detroit is, is a very unique environment. Um, where Detroit is located just geographically and, and how, the lakes are a what I would say is a a a, a natural inhibitor, uh, you know that that inhibits uh, a certain degree of cross border traffic. You realistically in in Detroit, it was an opportunity to 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 lead the men and women uh, in a unique operational environment. To really, it's almost like a three hundred and sixty degree threat, if you will. Right? We didn't we didn't only have uh, you know migration traffic, uh, both people and narcotics who were transiting through very well-established cartel systems uh, up through the United States and into the Detroit area, but then as well, you know, moving laterally uh, across the United States, east to west or west to east, however you wanted to, to take a look at it. Uh, and then additionally speaking down from Canada, you know, so, so a, a, a very unique environment um, you know, you know, we have a great partnership with our with our partners in in uh, in Canada, uh, and great allies in this mission, and and really work collectively uh, with them. It, it it not only taught me how to uh, how to run and lead a sector, uh, you know, as as I had different opportunities uh, in that role, but it also you know taught me how to to work internationally very closely as as you know, one of two, uh, you know, senior leaders uh, in that entire sector responsible for multiple stations, you know, hundreds of agents, uh, very complex and dynamic working environment, not necessarily uh, what I would consider is a high threat in regards to flow. It doesn't have a lot of flow to it, but the potential harm of, of people transiting through the area and what that threat looks like um, can be very damaging, yeah. you know, and and so so really harnessing all those things that we've talked about previously in order to be able to to run run the sector effectively to, to protect our borders. Yeah. So somewhere along the way in Detroit, you get roped in to 
I don't know if it's a volunteer situation or a voluntold situation, but you get roped into being a senior executive counselor for immigration and border security to not one, not two, but three secretaries for the Department of Homeland Security. How does that happen? And walk me through a little bit about, A, what a normal day look like, number one, and then how does a career federal servant right? A career federal servant, not politically affiliated with anything left or right, doesn't really matter. But what is your job in that role as an advisor for immigration, right? What does that look like? And you maintain this kind of apolitical nature of who we are, who we espouse to be. How do you navigate that? Yeah. So, so that's, that's a good question. So, um, you know, uh, so so I was gently asked. That's uh, <laughs> voluntold, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> if I would, uh, um, you know, come to to uh, to headquarters DHS, right, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, when Secretary Kristen Nielsen was was the secretary, uh, and and work uh, on her front office team in order to be able to help, uh, you know, the border security, uh, you know, and and. Um, uh, border security, immigration, you know, counseling, if you will, just to be able to provide good, sound operational advice um, to to a politically appointed person in, a, in an apolitical manner, so that they can make the best decisions possible on an executive level. Uh, you know where they would like to to lead the organization, and uh, and bring to bear the the experiences that we have and the recent relevant field experience that we bring into the conversation to be able to help uh, guide them. You know, under that time period, um, you know, as you recall, extremely volatile. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, Chief Landrum was was actually at the, uh, 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 the at the White House working as well. And he and I worked together daily. So a lot of these uh, these these I'll say difficult conversations and that, that we were we were having at the time and and uh, and, and very impacting national policy decisions uh, that that we were pervy to or, or at least during the to some of the process there um, we were doing them together you know and and but it was an it was an interesting time period an interesting environment uh, to be able to help advise you know, uh, not one, not two, but three, three different secretaries, uh, both uh, Secretary Nielsen, Secretary McLean and, and Secretary Wolf, uh, you know, as as they uh, um, as they they transition through the various roles. So uh, when we take a look at, at the national policy that was created during that time period, uh, you know, it's very complex, very, very border security, national security oriented at the time uh, and, and to be able to be part of and watch some of that evolution. Uh, and 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 maintain an apolitical stance, and, and um, I'll say adv advising in an apolitical stance. You know, uh, I hate to say it, but it is what it is. Uh, type of type of approach. Just you know, this is this you know thoughts and and and, and perspectives. Uh, you know, is it, it was an interesting time period. One that that I think is probably uh, one of the greatest time periods where where I really developed what I would consider as a political savvy. Yeah. A, a respect and admiration and a deeper understanding of the political environment that I had ever received before in my career. Uh, and, and, and I attribute a lot of the successes that I've, I've had since those, those, uh, since those opportunities to, to the lessons I learned uh, during, during those, you know, during those time periods. So 
Uh, very, very interesting uh, time period and went and traded for the world. Yeah, I say the same thing. Um, and, and obviously, uh, you probably uh, undersell how much we spoke uh, during the, that that uh, length of time, uh, be from the White House and you mm-hmm. from from the Secretary's office. Uh, but I think the the issue here is it is really easy, in my opinion, to maintain this kind of apolitical approach to providing best national security advice to decision makers to inform their calculus because that's really what they're doing. You're not writing the policy. You're not, you're just informing what would work and what wouldn't work. Right. right? So if you stay consistent in so far as you remain apolitical from the jump, mm-hmm. from the start, then there's no other expectation that that's what mm-hmm. they're going to get from you. Absolutely. Right. And I think First of all, you can't endure three secretaries or, you know, me at the White House for 15 months if that wasn't recognized, number one, right? And number two, valued, right? Politics aside, politics don't matter in this this situation. What you know and what they were asking you to inform on was border security, right? right? So you did that uh, and and obviously uh, performed very well, from my eyes anyway, Um in in those roles because you were able to exercise the political savvy that you were literally you know growing into as well as um just maintaining you know truth to power kind of scenario mm-hmm. right absolutely yeah. absolutely so you you finally finish this this uh parade of tour after tour after tour right this road show of uh secretaries and you get the opportunity to promote uh into the deputy chief uh, the Law Enforcement Operations Directorate at U.S. Portal Headquarters. This is a senior executive service yep. position. Um, so you take all the acumen that you have developed, uh, not only over your career, but even more specifically in the last, you know, say five years leading up to this particular uh, assignment, and you start applying it to uh, the national problem set mm-hmm. that is, you know, southern border migration or all threats from the Canadian border, et cetera. So kind of characterize for me what the what the deputy chief of operations does at headquarters. Sure. So the the deputy chief of of uh, of operations, I, I will tell you, is is it's one of those what I would consider is is the catch all positions, you know, uh, is as we worked it collectively okay. together when 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 we were there, um, uh, you know, all the issues that are occurring within the United States Border Patrol, good, bad, mm-hmm. are, are going to be filtered through the deputy chief of ops. Um, you know, all the, the great stories and, and all the sad things are, 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 you know, are going to go to the deputy chief of ops. All the calls in the middle of the night, um, you know, all the successes and all the failures, you know, that, that, uh, that we have. And not only are, are you seeing that from the field, you are helping to drive and develop the strategic approach of the United States Border Patrol to to really border border security and national security, you know, you're you're developing that through through teams of of uh, amazing men and women uh, who are extremely well qualified, uh, experienced and trained uh, on the team there, and and uh, utilizing their talents and and uh, and of course 
the strategic vision of the chief and the deputy uh, and the chief of ops and and uh, in order to be able to to try and develop what that what what does the border patrol of tomorrow look like not only are you having the impact of the today and the now but you're also having to to develop and execute what the border patrol tomorrow looks like as well and and that's ultimately you know what i i you know how I felt the deputy chief of ops uh, job was, and and really, you know, having the experiences uh, not only in the field and then the various leadership positions, you know, that I had over time, as well as the uh, I'll say the political exposure uh, that I had as through through various positions, you know, the not only the detail to the secretary, but but running public affairs for CBP for a while as well. Um, you know, all of those things culminate into, to, you know, what I would consider as, uh, you know, execution of the job of the, the deputy chief of ops. Yeah. So you do that for a minute. Yes. Right. And then you, minute. yeah, a hot mm-hmm. minute. I w- I'm familiar. <laughs> and then you, uh, you know, we, we've talked about this again on, on this podcast, but, uh, generally the, the ranks of strategic leaders at the at the uh, national level and across the board at the CPA, little chief patrol agent level, mm-hmm. um, the average tenure is probably in the neighborhood of three, maybe four or five years if you're lucky, yeah. um, just a, as a historic metric over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we it naturally create some turnover mm-hmm. and some gaps, right? So uh, Chief Manny Padilla at the time, who's still a board patrol agent, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the most tenured board patrol agent right now, yeah. uh, who's soon to retire, in November, but he gets asked to fleet up and go uh, serve as a, an executive assistant commissioner uh, for for Commissioner Magnus, and therefore leaves a void at the chief of operations, which would have ordinarily been your boss. Yes. You get asked to fleet up from there and perform that role. So you characterize for me what what the deputy does. How's it different from the chief? What does the chief do? So. The- that's let, me, great, let me just ask you this. What doesn't the chief do? Yes, let me, that, let me that, reframe the question. You literally <laughs> took the words out of my mouth at that point. So, so um, uh, I will tell you that I have worked. Uh, it, th- this is literally the, the, the hardest and most demanding job I have ever done in, in my entire life. Um, you know, one of, one of the, the roles and responsibilities of, of the, you know, the chief of operations is really, truly, to help manage and lead the sectors of the United States Border Patrol. Not only to do that, but to to develop owning, truly owning and implementing the strategic vision of the chief and the deputy of of the Border Patrol, to be able to work laterally across the entire uh, uh, U.S. government to integrate across the entire United States government in order to be able to succeed at the not only the development of the strategic vision, uh, you know, and and and, uh, and and then the implementation and, and execution of what whatever needs to happen. Um, not only are are you know are you doing this in the normal roles and responsibility, but you know as I sit here today looking at. Uh, over two million encounters, uh, you know, so far this year, you know, there, it is the highest encounter rate uh, or apprehension rate that we've ever had in recorded history. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about in recorded history. Period. Um, you know, so so it is extremely vi- busy. It is an extremely dynamic environment. We have an incredible degree of flow. Uh, you know, and 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 uh, not only 
you know, do you balance those, but it's the other threats that come along with that and, and that increased th flow as well. So it's working, uh, you know, working around the clock uh, to ensure that that we we keep people safe. I mean, and, and that that's really what it boils down to it, uh, and, you know, is that, is that we're protecting, you know, the, the good people here in the United States away from the bad people who want to do them harm. Love it. So you said you made a specific um, comment in there about in the, in regards to characterizing the kind of the duties of the chief. You said you help lead the country, right? So in other words, right, and, and you kind of parlay that into creating a vision. That is essentially the position description of the chief of ops, right? You mm -hmm. create the vision that sets the tone nationally, yes. right? But you're in Washington, D.C., so you cannot execute that vision in Laredo. That's right. You cannot execute that vision in the Rio Grande Valley, Yuma, Maine, Puerto Rico, right? So you literally say the word help. That's an important distinction here. Mm -hmm. You're not trying to run operations from with a 3,000-mile screwdriver, as a former chief used no. to say, right? You are literally trying to, again, you build that vision, then it's your job to build that trust right. with those chiefs, right? Make sure that there's kind of shared consciousness across the board that everybody understands the vision, everybody is bought into the vision. And then from there, empower those subordinate leaders at that point, which are the chief patrol agents, mm -hmm. folks like me in the field, to execute against that vision. Absolutely. Right. So that's that's really um I, I don't want to stray too far away from the fact that um you're you're the chief operating officer. Right. I, I, to put it corporately, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's, it's more about empowering the people That's to do, right. to do the job. Right. And I think you do it uh, pretty darn well. Uh, that. Yep. <clears throat> so that's where you currently sit. It is. Right. It is. So what I want to do a couple things before we conclude, number one, you have, and I'm catching you off guard a little bit on this one, but uh, I'm sure you don't mind talking about it for just a minute, but you have a, a quite the history, uh, educationally. And I want to kind of talk about it in the frame of, you know, we can talk about credentials all day long. That's, that's, that's good. Um, as it relates to the requirement to professionalize mm -hmm. the, the art of leadership for us, right? How do we, how do we inject academics into the practitioners that we are right. of, of leadership right. and, mm -hmm. and national security? So number one, and then number two, kind of maybe talk about did you have any assistance along the way? Did you, did you, are you doing this all out of hide? Like, did you partake in any programs that might've mm -hmm. helped you along the way, that kind of thing? So can you just talk about a couple of those things for us real quick? Absolutely. Thanks. So, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I think that education is, is, is critical. You know, I think that as we start taking a look at a, a learning organization, right, in every evolving organization, uh, and, and if we take a look at, Let's just take a look at, at how COVID alone mm -hmm. had us move out of our comfort zone and evolve as an organization to be able to incorporate remote work strategies into the way that we operate, something we haven't really you know, done before. So I always say that there's an art and a science to leadership. Mm -hmm. And you can be really great at the art mm -hmm. and you can be really great at the science. You know, to be but to be truly great at it, you need to have have you need to be able to blend the two. You know, um, so so I, I did. I focused uh, a lot on uh, you know I, I, I was learning the art, yeah. and, and I know that I needed to learn the science. You know, and and um, you know I have a bachelor's degree from University of Maine in, in, in criminal justice. It was a great experience, uh, but then uh, you know CBP specifically actually through through Office of Training and Development OTD you know, has the tuition assistance program, the TAPS program, uh, an amazing opportunity, amazing 
opportunity that CBP gives people uh, to be able to get tuition assistance uh, and, and agreements with uh, specific colleges and universities to have lessened tuition. Uh, and marrying those two things make obtaining what I would consider as higher education and further professional and personal development very obtainable. Uh, so I actually utilized the TAPS program in order to be able to, to go to Champlain College, got a master's degree in business administration and leadership uh, out of Champlain. And then that opened doors up uh, to a PhD program and being sponsored to be able to do a PhD program as well, of which I just completed back in June uh, in, in getting a, a, you know, a, a doctor of philosophy in, in business administration and management. Uh, and and be able to to uh, uh, to really succeed at a dream, you know, uh, all through the help of CBP and OTD and uh, the incredible leadership of of Assistant Commissioner Chris Hall and bringing these programs uh, to to the broader you know CBP you know workforce, you know, so so really leverage those in order to be able to try and develop the science part of it. You know, and I think that through that was able to really, uh, you know, I'll say blend some of the art and the science and, and hopefully uh, that's reflected in, in the leadership that I bring to bear today. Yeah, it's it's absolutely reflected. And I, I love the frame of art and science. Uh, like, like, you know, I let in with the uh, with the with the issue of, you know, overlaying education with practice. Yeah. Art and science is a way better way to say it. Yeah. Dr. Tony, <laughs> right? um, but it, it could not be more true. The other thing I'd like to just identify is education is not required for our organization. It's not right. But we, especially here at the U S Portugal Academy, we leave uh, students or, or trainees when they leave here to, uh, with, with the mindset of uh, whether it's training, education, et cetera, should not stop here. You, you know, what got you here, i.e. through the Border Patrol Academy, will not make you the chief of chief of uh, operations and, and law enforcement operations directorate and, and headquarters. It is a lifelong commitment mm -hmm. to art and science. Yeah. It really is. If you if you really want to be effective, almost to your final point, right? If you really want to be as, as effective as you can possibly be, you owe it to your future workforce to start today utilizing those programs like TAP, Tuition Assistance Program, to continue the science as much as you are working on the art. Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, so thank you for that. Sorry to put you on the spot. Yeah. Didn't mean to do that, but uh, I, I know you could uh, pivot pretty easily. So we've reached the kind of the point uh, where I like to talk about, we are in the What's Important Now podcast, uh, the WIND podcast. Um, I like to turn the, the, the floor and the mic over to you to maybe talk about the two, three, four things that keep you up at night. What's important sure. to you right now? Sure. So... Um, what keeps me up at night? Uh, a lot, <laughs> to be honest. But, Besides the you know, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I'll be honest. So, uh, you know, the 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 health of the organization uh, is is probably the principal thing uh, that that is always of concern to me. And I say the health of the organization. I'm talking about the men and women of the United States Border Patrol. Um, and, and, and realistically CBP, but the United States Border Patrol uh, to, to ensure that um, they are in a position that they can execute the mission, that they are healthy, resilient, strong, confident. Um, you know, that all of these things that, uh, you know, that we, we try to make sure that we have a holistic 
well-balanced organization that, that uh, you know, we are delivering what our employees need in order to be able to take care of not only themselves and their families, but then the mission as well. So, so I'd say principally, as we are facing the times that we face now, and, and if you've listened to, you know, all of the different media rhetoric all around border security and the volume of people that are coming over and, and just how the impact of the workforce is, it's hard on the workforce. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, it, it is very taxing, you know, both physically and mentally uh, and, and ensuring that the men and women of the United States Border Patrol are taken care of uh, and, and they have what they need in order to be able to be sound and effective. That is probably the principal thing that keeps me up at night. Additionally speaking, I will tell you that, that um, uh, you know, what we are facing now organizationally is unprecedented. You know, um, people can can uh, you know have their opinion as to to what the causes and the impacts of all uh, of what we are facing you know is and what what those causes are you know. But the reality is is that for us in a political organization, th that impact is here. It's now, whether you know we are we are part of or not part of. Uh, you know, uh, the, you know, I'll say the, the, the philosophy or, or the hypotheses of the creation, it's re irregardless, right? Because we are dealing with a threat that is, that we're faced on the border every single day. And not only are we having to balance the humanitarian needs of the individuals that we encounter every day, but it is also that border security, national security piece that we have to balance in that as well. And, uh, you know, you know, the reality is at the end of the day that there are still bad people that are trying to come into the country and they are still trying to utilize, uh, you know, transnational criminal organizations and cartels in order to be able to blend into this this high volume of flow that we we encounter. Uh, and, and it is our job to stop them. It is that simple. You know, I, I say that our job boils down to a simple statement. It is to stop bad people from doing bad things to the good people in this country. It is really that easy, you know, and, and to and to be whether it is the first or the last line of defense, whatever way you want to call it, uh, you know, it, it is it is to do that job and do it effectively. Um, so so, you know, what what are the threats that uh, that we are encountering? But more importantly, what are the threats that we are not encountering? You know, and, and that unknown is 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 uh, is also what keeps me up at night, because ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, it's the men and women of the Border Patrol that are on the watch. Very well said. I like it. So <clears throat> I want to kind of uh, encapsulate a few things that I heard to kind of put a bow on our conversation this afternoon. Um, first thing that I heard, uh, in my opinion, is never stop fighting to modernize the ways in which we execute the mission. We talked about the EIT experience on a relative scale of you know time, if you will. Uh, so what does what does the modernization of the U.S. Border Patrol and the way we affect our mission look like today? What does it look like in two years? What does it look like in 10 years? Um, if you're out there, you should be thinking about that right now. Um, next, I would say we should all want our political leaders to seek the counsel of our career federal servants. Yes, absolutely. Right. So if if elected leaders are making decisions in vacuums as it relates to things like border security, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a space which we as practitioners more most specifically kind of have cornered, right, then they may have blind spots. They may be very smart in one particular area, whether it be, you know, 
uh, information technology or enforcement or whatever, but they have blind spots mm -hmm. elsewhere. So politics aside, again, we should want each uh, uh, of our of our elected officials, no matter what side of the aisle they sit on, to mm -hmm. seat the council of, of those of us that have been doing the job, right? Absolutely. It is our job then to be good stewards mm -hmm. of their of their uh, trust and faith in our ability to provide the best national security advice possible. Absolutely. Right. Um, and then number three, it kind of parlays off of number two, and that is um, pursue the science of leadership as aggressively as you as you work the art. Absolutely. Right. So those three things, I think for me, kind of, uh, uh, you know, among some some more personal stuff, kind of sum up uh, Tony Barker, the chief of the operations, operations director at headquarters, the professional. Um, so I want to thank you not only for coming in today and mentoring 1194 uh, and imparting that wisdom on them, but also uh, your leadership and mentor uh, with me specifically over mentorship over time. So I look forward to uh, great things from you and a, and a continued uh, great relationship and excited to see where you take this thing. I would say likewise, my friend. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it. And with that, honor first.